six verses of the last six verses of Mark 15. And when even was now come, because it was the ration, that is, the day before the Sabbath, there came Joseph of Arimathea, a counselor of honorable estate, who also himself was looking for the kingdom of God. And he boldly went in unto Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead, and calling unto him the centurion, he asked him whether he had been any while dead. And when he learned it of the centurion, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And he bought a linen a cloth, and taking him down, wound him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of a rock. And he rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph beheld where he was laid. Well now this evening we come to this last section of um, this uh, vision, the crucifixion burial of the servant of of the Lord. We come to the burial <coughs> of Christ. And it is a fact uh, worthy of serious consideration that all four Gospels underline the burial of Christ. For them it was no small matter. They do not dismiss it in a sentence or two as an unimportant matter merely linking Christ's death with his resurrection. In a simple, straightforward manner, all of them emphasize the, re the reality of the death of Christ. It was as real a death as the death of any human being. For instance, Mark repeatedly speaks of the dead Christ in these six verses. In uh, verse uh, 43, um, he, say, he says of Joseph, took courage, went to Pilate, and asked for the body of Jesus. Verse 44, Pilate wondered if he were already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him again whether he was already dead. And then even more emphatic in this verse 45, when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he granted the, the corpse to Joseph. A revised standard version body, but in actual fact the word there is not the same Greek word as used in verse 43. The first word, we'll come to it later, just means body, but this word is really corpse, as you have in your revised version. So most believers don't like to use such a term of the Lord Jesus. They don't like to, it makes them almost uh, shudder, almost uh, draw back. Uh, he granted the corpse. We can't Think of such a possibility with the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is how emphatically Mark, how graphically, if you like, Mark 
um, record uh, this. Then he goes on in verse 46, he bought a linen shroud, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock, rolled a stone against the door of uh, the tomb. Uh, the whole uh, atmosphere breathes the finality of death as far as earthly life is concerned. The servant of the Lord had tasted death not only inwardly bearing the judgment upon our sin, but also outwardly. It seems quite clear that Mark, along with the other writers of the Gospels, uh, attached a very real significance to the burial of Christ. As with the crucifixion, uh, he does not seek to explain or interpret the fact. He only states it emphatically. But I think you will all realize that it could easily been said in a sentence. It could have just been said, Joseph went, got the body, and laid it in the tomb. But the fact is that all four gospel uh, writers um, tell uh, the story as something in, in which they obviously see very real significance, although they do not seek to explain that significance. They only state the fact. It's later on in the New Testament uh, that the full significance of Christ's burial is explained and interpreted. The significance which the early church attached to the burial of Christ is embodied in the most ancient of the creeds, the Apostles' uh, Creed. I think, uh, although we don't often, I often feel we ought to say it together, um, but I read it to you, at least the part that um, we are dealing with. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Now, uh, uh, again, the early church, this creed, the Apostles' Creed, could have easily left out. All it needed to say was he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, uh, and on the third day rose again from the dead. Well, you notice that in this most ancient of our creeds, um, uh, the which expresses really the faith of the apostolic church, we have these words, um, was crucified, dead, and buried. <laughs> Not even just he was crucified and buried. He was crucified, dead, and buried. Now, this is exactly exactly in keeping with the teaching of the New Testament. It's not just that we had to understand that Jesus was crucified. He died, and he was buried. 
And as we shall see, he descended into hell. Uh, it's this, I'm afraid, though repeated by so many people, this, and believed by all true believers, it's in sad contrast, this confession, this living confession of the early church, uh, to the majority of Christians today who attach little importance to the burial of Christ. Indeed, it would appear that many are afraid to believe that Christ truly died and was buried, giving the impression that they believe his death and burial was a kind of act, and that the resurrection proved that it was only a form and not a reality. Now, this may well be in our own hearts. The idea is that he never really died. It was all just, just a form. I mean, it was an act, really. Uh, a sham, in one sense, although not in, a, in an unpleasant way. Uh, in other words, his death was not a reality. Now, such a view must of necessity limit the reality of our experience of the full salvation of God. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> If we, if we do not see the significance of the burial of Christ in some way our experience um, of our salvation and of what it means to be in Christ must be limited. The fact of the matter is that Christ truly died. It was a lifeless body that was taken down from the cross and laid lovingly in that tomb. It is only... I think, as we understand this fact, that we understand the wondrous glory and power of his resurrection. For the full significance of that glorious resurrection can only be appreciated when we have understood the real significance of his burial. We must not, therefore, as so many do, rush through these verses to the resurrection. Uh, as if this is some sad and depressing interlude. Uh, but by the grace of God, uh, we must meditate deeply upon its meaning. Outwardly, it may have all the sad trappings of a funeral, but its real significance is glorious. Now, I am fully aware and we've prayed about it, uh, that there are folks who, as soon as you speak about burial, psychologically turn off. Um, they sort of, it doesn't matter, you've only got to mention the tomb, you've only got to mention uh, funeral, burial, and immediately people have turned off. And they do exactly the same even with the Lord Jesus. This is why they have to rush through this to get to the resurrection. Um, as, as if... Um, if they don't immediately get to the resurrection, their faith will be dealt a, a, a death blow. Um, but I don't think this is true at all. We can stay, as, the, as Samuel Crossman wrote in his hymn, Here might I stay and sing, no story so divine. He spoke about uh, being uh, mine the tomb wherein uh, he lay. The servant of the Lord was dead. For those devoted woman, women uh, who watched from a distance, it must have seemed like a thunderbolt 
as indeed it must have been for all the disciples when the news reached them, wherever they were. He who had been so filled with power, anointed by God, the Messiah, the Christ of God, whose hands had healed so many, whose word had brought deliverance to multitudes, whose very presence had revealed not only the truth of God, but the love and compassion of God, bringing the light of God to those who sat in darkness. He was dead. The one who had said that he would give eternal life uh, to those who believed on him, who had said that he was himself that life, who had indeed raised the dead to life, who had said that those who believed on him would never die, that from within them would flow out rivers of living water. He himself was dead and lifeless. It must have been to those, those devoted disciples a terrible shock. It was a dead, unseeing, silenced, silent Christ that was taken down from the cross and laid in Joseph's tomb. Now it is to underline the reality of that death and its full meaning that we have the record of his burial. What then does it signify? Before we look at the ver verses in a more technical way, if we get to that, uh, what does in fact the, the burial of Christ signify? It speaks of the fact that firstly, Christ had tasted of death for every man. Now I give you a few scriptures in connection with this well-known ones. Hebrews 2, chapter 9. Hebrews 2, chapter 9. We behold him who has been made a little lower than the angels, even Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he should taste of death for every man. Now, the fact of the burial signifies that he had tasted of death for every man, not only inwardly, but outwardly. Now, if you turn to scriptures, you'll find a whole lot of well-known scriptures that come to mind. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Genesis 2, verse 17, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And then Genesis 3, and uh, verse uh, 22, and now, said the Lord, lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. He put him out of the garden. In other words, death. Ezekiel 18, verse 4, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And then 1 Corinthians 15, and verse 3 and 4. For I delivered unto you first of all that which also I received, that Christ died 
for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he hath been raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And then again, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, another very well-known scripture, God commendeth his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now what does the burial of Christ signify? Simply this, that he had tasted of death for every man. He had not... En- He had not only entered that realm of spiritual death, being made sin for us and bearing the judgment of our sin, but he had tasted physical death, the physical outcome of sin. When the Bible says he tasted death, it means precisely what it says. He tasted death. Death. He experienced death. The full horror of such experience for the one who in all his being had never known or experienced death in any form whatsoever must be beyond our understanding. We catch a little glimpse, I think, of what it meant to him in those immortal words in John 11:35, Jesus wept. It was not for Lazarus, you know, of course, the story. It was when he was at the tomb of Lazarus, and Lazarus, Lazarus had been dead for four days, that when he came to the tomb, having already said to Mary, uh, thy bro- uh, uh, to Mary and Martha, thy brother shall live again, And did they believe that he was able to do it? When he came to the tomb, it says, and when he saw their wailing and mourning, Jesus wept. Why did he weep? He knew very well he was going to raise Lazarus within a few moments. Within that hour, Lazarus would be sitting at the table, eating with them, full of soundness and health. So why did he weep? It wasn't uh, because of Lazarus that he wept. It was the awful vacuum, the awful emptiness, the disorder, the aimlessness, the misery, the corruption, the bondage which death has wrought in God's creation, which so moved the Lord Jesus that he wept. Now he had himself tasted death. I think that that little incident gives us just a little clue um, as to what it must have meant to the Lord Jesus uh, when he finally tasted death. In the scripture, death is always viewed as an enemy, never as a friend. It did not occupy, as far as we can see, any place in God's original purpose for man. It is in its every sense always linked, at least in Scripture, with sin. Now, I know we have some very interesting suggestions made to us in earlier years about the possibility that there might be some way of a kind of season, winter and so on, and many other things which uh, give us some problems. Nevertheless, we have to say this. Whether that may be so or not, 
from Romans 8, where it's quite clear that the subjection of the natural creation to bondage is something to do with sin. It's subjection to death, it's subjection to the futility of death, is in some way connected with sin. Now this is a very important point. Christ tasted death for every man that he might free every man who believes from its power and domain, from its fear, from its bondage, that in fact uh, everyone who believes might know life and life more abundant. His death in our place was not an artificial death. It wasn't a form. It was a reality, a terrible reality. He tasted death. It was a dead Christ that was taken down from the cross. Secondly, it speaks also of the fact that our sin has been buried out of sight. Christ has borne our sin into oblivion. Now, of course, we've sung some of the hymns that put this in, uh, into these words. Buried he carried my sins far away. But I don't suppose most Christians think for a moment um, how uh, their carrying of their sins far away is connected with the burial of Christ. But the whole thought in burial is the putting out of sight. Uh, of, uh, of death, of, of, of that whole world. And when Christ was buried, it was, as it were, he was taking our sins with him into oblivion. He was burying uh, them. Now, we have some wonderful scriptures in connection with this. We have, of course, the well-known scripture, John 1, 29. Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world who taketh away the sin of the world. Or Hebrews chapter 9 and verse uh, 26. Listen to these words. Else must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the ages hath he been manifested to put away sin. Now this isn't just to bear sin, not just to die in our place for our sin, but to put it away. Let it sink into you. Take it away. Put it away. Again, in 1 John, chapter 3, and verse 5, we have the same wonderful thought. And every... And, uh, sorry, verse 5, chapter 3. And ye know that he was manifested to take away sins. And in him is no sin. Then again, think of Acts, chapter 3. And verse 19, those wonderful words of Peter. Here they are. Repent ye therefore and turn again, be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. That your sins may be blotted out. And then of course there's a whole number of wonderful Old Testament verses. There's Isaiah 44 and uh, verse uh, 22. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions 
and as a cloud thy sins, return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Or Isaiah 43, verse 25, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and I will not remember thy sins. God not only blots them out, he will not even remember them. And this is what is what is signified by the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been carried right away out of the sight of God, never to be remembered again. As I've said before to you, most of us think of um, the Lord in terms of our own legal system. Even though a person may have paid the penalty, the record of their crime is kept forever and can be referred to uh, at any successive uh, venture uh, into crime. Uh, the record will be uh, referred to, will be in fact brought up, even though the, the crime's been paid for. And we tend to think of God like that. We think that, that God somehow or other has a long memory, and that he remembers every single thing. We've always forgiven us. Of course, we're all cleared about that. We're forgiven and we're even cleansed. But he remembers these things because he's God. But God says he will remember our sins no more. He's blotted them out. The very record has been destroyed of the sin. Once confessed, once the blood of Christ has touched it, it's gone. Now we have so many other scriptures. Psalm 103, verse uh, 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Jeremiah 31 and verse 34. And the last part, uh, speaking of the new covenant, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin will I remember no more. Now it is exactly this that's taken up in the New Testament in Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 3 and 4. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance made of sins year by year. A remembrance made of sins year by year. For it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Verse 11. And every priest indeed standeth day by day ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices the which can never take away sins. But then... But he, when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, henceforth expecting till his enemies be made the footstool of his feet. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also beareth witness to us, for after he hath said, This is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws on their heart and upon their mind also will I write them. Then saith he, And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Isn't that wonderful? Half the neuroses amongst Christians would disappear if they got hold of the significance of the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. This terrible sense of condemnation, this sense of a skeleton somewhere in the cupboard, this sense that things are haunting us from the past. The whole thing has been dealt with. It's a phantom. 
And it's a phantom that the enemy is interested in keeping alive, as it were, if, if that's not an Irish um, <laughs> statement, um, uh, uh, to, to sort of destroy our joy and our peace. That's all. That's why the Apostle Paul takes up this whole thing in Romans 8 and says, um, Who then shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ who died, yea rather, that is risen, and who is at the right hand of God, whoever liveth, to make intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Christ has not only saved us from our sins, but he has borne it away like the scapegoat of old, out of sight and out of remembrance. You see, on that great day, there were two goats. One was slain. That was the death of Christ. And the other went out into the wilderness over the horizon and the high priest said, See your sins disappear, so the Talmud says. See your sins, O Israel, disappear. Many Christians have seen Christ's death, but they have never seen that their sins have disappeared. The record has gone. God himself has destroyed the record of our sins. It has been buried with Christ to be remembered no more. Third thing that the burial of Christ speaks of, it speaks of the fact that the power of the enemy has been nullified and relationship to him has been severed. Now here um, lies the, the, the basis for every deliverance that any single human being can know. For our sins can be cancelled out. We can know forgiveness. But we need not necessarily know because of our ignorance. Deliverance. But the burial of Christ speaks of deliverance. And it is the risen and ascended Christ. And the outpoured Holy Spirit. That brings us back to the fact that in the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. The power of Satan has been made naught has been brought to naught. And the, our relationship to the, our link, if you like, with Satan and with that whole realm has been severed. Uh, read Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Since then the children are sharers in flesh and blood. He also himself in like manner partook of the same that through death he might bring to naught him that had the power of death. That is the devil and might deliver all them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now the burial of Christ is just underlining the reality of the death of Christ. And uh, I think of Colossians chapter 2 and uh, verse 14 and 15, having blotted out the bond written in ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, he had taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross, having despoiled the principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Or I think of 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. Now Christ, by his death, has brought to naught 
Satan's power and authority. He has zeroed him. If that brings it home to you, he has zeroed him. All the might of Satan, zero. Brought to zero. All the authority of Satan, brought to zero. All the works of Satan, brought to zero. All the devices of Satan, brought to zero. Oh, if we only saw it. If we only saw it, the whole thing's been left in the tomb. There's a great stone over the door. Satan doesn't like us to, to even think of such a possibility. He breathes down our neck. He gives us every evidence that he's very much alive. But by faith, by faith we overcome him through the blood of the Lamb. It is the death of Christ. By the death of Christ that we overcome Satan. It's when we proclaim the fact. The fact. Of course he seems to have all power and much might and so on uh, as he rages around the world. But... Speak the word of the cross. Speak the word of the cross in faith. And he knows he hasn't one whit of power. He can do nothing. He is absolutely paralyzed. He's been zeroed. All satanic power, satanic might, satanic work and working has been brought to naught. Brought to naught. Zeroed. Zeroed by the death of Christ. He has buried our enemies. Oh, how wonderful it is. Now, you see, you get this all in the Old Testament again. You remember that wonderful uh, cry after the Passover lamb, after they came to the, dead, the, the Red Sea, not the Dead Sea, the, the Red Sea. When they came out on the other side, the, the Pharaoh's host are saying to go after them and to destroy them, went in uh, to to pass over on dry ground and God spoke a word and the, and, and the waters came back. Now, in uh, Exodus 15, of course, and uh, verse 4, we have this wonderful song of Moses and the children. Pharaoh's chariots and his host had he cast into the sea. His chosen captains are sunk in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Thy right hand, O Lord, is glorious in power. And so on. Verse 8. With the blast of thy nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flood stood upright as a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. Hasn't he said it of you? Hasn't he said it of us? Of course he does. He says it again and again. Of everyone who escapes out of his clutches, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied upon them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. Thou didst blow with thy wind. The sea covered them. They sank as lead in the mighty waters. Buried. Buried out of sight. Gone. What a wonderful Wonderful picture. Well, I think of, 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 of Nehemiah. He got the truth. Uh, if you turn to Nehemiah. <coughs> Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 11. This is what he said, facing a similar situation in his own day. And thou didst divide the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. And their pursuers thou didst cast into the depths as a stone into the mighty waters. Buried. Zephaniah's got the same marvellous thought in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, where he says, Thine enemy is cast out. Sing, shout, O daughter of Israel. Thine, thine enemy is cast out. 
Thou shalt see evil no more. I connect it also, of course, with John 16, verse 11, the words of our Lord Jesus, that the prince of this world is judged uh, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, convicting of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. And in chapter 12, verse 31, now is the prince of this world cast out. Now, we may not feel at times that he is cast out, but thank God we have this word of faith. He is. He, the Lord Jesus took into the grave the links forged between fallen man and Satan through sin. And in his burial, he broke the link. Actually, it was broken in his death. But in his burial, as it were, he buried the whole thing. The whole fathering of us by Satan. The whole energizing of us by Satan. The terrible, dark, subconscious link of every human being with the powers of darkness until saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That he broke in, the, uh, in his death and burial. He has terminated it in his death and buried it forever. Buried it forever. Oh, the significance. No wonder they said dead and buried. Wonderful. Fourth thing. Uh, it speaks of the fact that an old man, an old nature, an old creation, an old order, an old world has not only been crucified with Christ, it has been buried with him forever. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. We were buried therefore with him through baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we also might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away, uh, that so we should no longer be in bondage to sin. It's the same marvelous thought again. Uh, turn to um, um, uh, Galatians 2.20. You know it well. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live. Yet not I. But Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live. I live by the faith of the Son of God. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Or Colossians chapter 2. Verse 11. Here you've got the same thought again. Buried with Christ. Having been buried with Christ with him in baptism, wherein you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead, buried with him. I think of 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that they who live should no longer live unto themselves, but unto him who for their sakes died and rose again. A whole world, a whole order, a, a certain kind of man 
has been put away in Christ. It was not only judged in Christ, it was put away in Christ. That whole kind of man, that whole world order in which we are all born naturally has been terminated in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God. It's only a question of time before the whole thing is finally put away at the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it has already been terminated in his crucifixion, in his death, and his burial was the putting of it right away out of sight, that we might know a new world, a new order, a new life, a new man. And this you get if you look at Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3. Ye died, your life is hid with Christ in God. And then in verse 9, seeing that ye have put off the old man, uh, uh, with his doings and have put on the new man who, that is being renewed unto knowledge after the image of him that created him where there cannot be Greek or Jew uh, circumcision and uncircumcision barbarian, Scythian, bondman, free man but Christ is everything and in everyone so you see the burial of Christ speaks of a severance uh, a, a severance between one kind of man and a new man, an old man and a new man, between an old world and its order and a new world and its order, between, uh, if you like, an old creation and a new creation. And by the grace of God, we have been taken in Christ to the cross and crucified, and we have been put away with him in his burial, and we shall come to that another study one day, I trust, the Lord uh, it's good to us. Uh, we, through his resurrection, we come out in a new man. Now that's the wonder of the whole thing. We've got it again in those verses. 2 Corinthians 5. We thus judge that if one died for all, then all are dead. And then he goes on. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, there is a new creation. We've all died. If any man be in Christ, there is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And all things are of God, who reconciled us unto himself. Well, this is so wonderful, really, but it's all the significance of this, uh, the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. The problem with so many of us is uh, not just sins. <clears throat> we know what sin is, and we may even learn by the grace of God and the power of God to keep clear of sins, uh, or certainly the grosser kind. But our problem is not always sin itself. That is our problem. And when we find we've become believers, we find the same old ugly self there that wants to have its way and rebels at every turn uh, that doesn't really want God's will and wants to have itself at the center, and so on and so forth. That is our problem. It's the problem in all Christian work. It's the problem in every Christian life. The meaning and significance of the burial of Christ is that God hasn't only crucified us, he's put us out of sight. He's really put us away in order that something new may come in. And likewise, uh, that whole order of things in this world has gone. Our trouble is that we Christianize it. How does the world do things? Well, they do it like this and this and this. So we Christianize it and bring it into Christian work and make it all lovely. And then we just put Christian words in it and dress it up in a Christian way and we say, now this is the way to do it. 
Two-thirds of our church life is simply the world dressed up in Christianity. Christianized, skin deep, nothing more. And that's our problem. The whole matter is a question of origin and kind. The Bible says at the very beginning that um, everything reproduces after its kind. The world can only reproduce after its kind, but the Holy Spirit can reproduce after His kind. Let's put it this way. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and remains flesh, however much you Christianize it. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. I wish we could see it much more clearly, but oh, we'd be here the whole night uh, talking about this matter. And then it doesn't necessarily mean you'd see it. Uh, because it's a question of revelation, really. Um, uh, God has buried the whole thing with Christ. Good and bad, noble and base. The whole thing has been buried with him because it belongs essentially to another order and kind than God's order and kind. It is Ishmael, not Isaac. Therein lies all the tragedies in Christian work, in church life, and in the Christian life personally. We make our basic mistake just there. Now, strangely enough, it is just this that baptism testifies to. And everyone who's baptized testifies to this simple fact that not only their sins buried, but are They're no longer in that old man, they're in the new. They're no longer in the old creation, they're in the new. They're no longer in that world. They've been transferred, translated, transferred into the kingdom of God's dear Son. I wish, as I say, we could speak for long, but look, our time's really gone if we're going to look at uh, these verses and just say a few things more about them as to what they mean. Uh, all All our divisions, have been buried with Christ. It's the same thing. An old man is a man that's totally divided. He's divided racially, he's divided nationally, he's divided socially, he's divided religiously. He's divided and divided and divided and divided. It's all gone. Buried with Christ. There's no circumcision and uncircumcision. There's no Jew or Gentile. There's no bond or free. But Christ is everything and everyone. Now, before we look more closely at these verses in our last remaining moments, there's one more point we should note carefully, and it is the mysterious words in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, I think we ought to look at these because... um, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were saved through water. And then chapter 4, verse 6, it is again said, For this is why the gospel was preached even to the dead, that though judged in the flesh like men, they might live in the spirit like God. 
Now that is, I must say, a most mysterious comment by the Apostle Peter. And it is why, of course, in the, the Apostles' Creed, we say he descended into hell. Uh, we have here some marvelous but mysterious window into another world in which we see our Lord Jesus still preaching the gospel but to those who disobeyed in the time of Noah. All I can say is that truly Christ is the servant of the Lord. His lips may have been silent physically but he preached the gospel in the shadow of hell. It reminds me of a story years ago that Norman Grubb told me, perhaps I shouldn't tell you, about C.T. Studd, who someone went for him and said, you wicked hypocrite, you'll be in hell. You know, C.T. Studd was, uh, uh, caught, well, there was much controversy over him. And, uh, and some of them are the startier amongst the people of God, did not take at all kindly to C.T. Studd. Uh, but he, with a twinkle in his eye, he was Irish, uh, said, um, well, he said, if that be so, he said, I think he said that the devil may have a bit of a job on hand. Because when I get into hell, he said, I shall preach the gospel so much you kick me out. <laughs> Well, perhaps we shouldn't have told that story, but it's the wonderful thing anyway here is not in any way to take away from the ministry of the Lord Jesus, but here we have something quite mysterious. We don't know what happened. But one little point, very quickly in passing, I don't believe, I would have thought naturally that everyone who'd already died and was, as it were, on the other side would have jumped at the opportunity of believing in the gospel. So the whole lot were saved on mass. I don't believe it so. You see, this whole matter of really believing and submitting to God is a personality matter. It is nothing to do with the brain. It's a personality matter. Uh, think about it. And you will understand why there is a hell. There are people who will never bow to God. Never. Neither here nor there. <laughs> I wish I could talk about it longer. Well, now, let's just look quickly at these verses in the moments we've got left. Mark uh, 15. Uh, it was because of the quickly approaching Sabbath, when everything had to stop, that Joseph of Arimathea, a godly man and a distinguished and respected member of the Sanhedrin, took courage, went to Pilate, and requested that he might have the body of Christ in order to give him a decent burial. Now, those are verses 40. Uh, 2 and 43. Now, just one or two very quick notes. I shall mention them quickly and leave quite a lot later for in the notes for you to study yourself. The day of preparation. What was the day of preparation? Well, it's rather like, uh, I say still like, our Friday. This was the name for Friday, the day before the Sabbath, upon which so much centred in routine Jewish life. Uh, everything had to be done in the way of preparation for the weekend on the Friday, and should cease in good Orthodox Jewish households two hours before sunset. Uh, the, Sabbath, the Sabbath began at sunset on Friday, that's about 6 p.m., and lasted to sunset on Saturday. 
As I've said, most good Jews sought to take to get to have everything completed, all journeys and every other bit of business, at least an hour or more before a sunset. Now that means that it was probably at about three to three thirty p.m. very soon after the Lord Jesus died, unless Joseph had noticed that Jesus was about to die and had already gone to make uh, the uh, arrangements uh, that he. Uh, on a Friday afternoon, that he went to see Pilate. He hadn't got much time uh, to do all that was required for a decent Jewish burial. And um, uh, this explains the very hurried atmosphere in all four Gospels. We have a great sense of speed, everything being done quickly, and not, not indecently, but lovingly, gently, but with speed. Um, in fact, in the end, they had to leave Christ's burial incomplete uh, 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 to be finished on Sunday morning. As you know, the women were on their way back to complete the burial when they found that he had risen uh, from the dead. Second thing is Joseph of Arimathea. Just one or two things about Joseph of Arimathea. We don't know where Arimathea is. Today, so far, archaeologically, we've not discovered where it could be. Uh, Mark informs us that Joseph was a respected member of the Sanhedrin, honorable counselor is your authorized version, a translation, prominent member of the council, the New American Standard Bible. Respected or of high or good standing is what it really means. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, a godly, respected member. Uh, Luke tells us that he was a good and just man and was one of those who did not vote in favor of Christ's execution but had dissented from it. Find that in Luke 23, 50 and 51. Mark says that Joseph was waiting for the kingdom of God, literally one who was looking for or expecting the kingdom of God. So he had spiritual character. Matthew adds to our knowledge by telling us that he was in fact a disciple. <laughs> and uh, John uh, further tells us and explains the problem. He says that he was a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. In John 19, verse 38, it's quite clear that the death of Christ brought him out into the open. We can, all of us, compromise for a while, but in the end, we are forced, always by Christ crucified, to either be all out for him or deny him. Now, take that in, anyone who is compromising. You can only compromise for a while you will be inexorably forced in the end to deny your Lord or be all out for him. You wait. Uh, thirdly, boldly went in unto Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Uh, took courage and went. Gathered up courage. Took courage is the revised standard version. Gathered up courage and went is the new American standard uh, Bible. It evidently required no little courage to face Pilate with such a request. He stood to lose much in the society of which he was part. But uh, not only that, he might have incurred the uh, very real anger of Pilate. 
The bodies of those executed by the Roman authorities were, norm, uh, were normally disposed of by the authorities. Uh, that's the same in our country. Any person who used to be executed was never allowed to be given a burial by relatives, always by the authorities. Relatives were certainly not allowed uh, to, to have the body uh, for burial in Judea. The relatives and the disciples of Christ were humble people with no wealth or standing and would have stood no chance at all, even if they had had the courage to make a request uh, to Pilate for the body. Now, this explains why uh, the women kept so much in the background. They knew very well that they might only be an embarrassment, so they kept uh, a little off in the background. Joseph, being a respected and distinguished member of the Sanhedrin, stood a much greater chance, but it must have still required real courage. Roman governors were well known for their arbitrary cruelty if they happened to be in a bad mood, and especially with aristocratic Jews. And then, uh, we go on the next two verses, verses 44 and 45. Pilate was greatly surprised to hear that Christ had died so quickly and summoned the centurion in charge of the crucifixion to ascertain whether it was in fact true. When he'd received the centurion's report, he gave permission for the body to be given to Joseph. Now, there are one or two things here. First, Pilate marveled, verse 44. That's your authorized version, revised version. Wondered. Is your Revised Standard Version and New American Standard Bible was surprised to hear uh, is your New English Bible and Phillips. Crucifixion was a long and lingering death depending much upon the person's stamina. Pilate was evidently genuinely surprised to hear that Christ might have already died. Mark alone records his surprise and his questioning of the centurion. Secondly, he granted the corpse to Joseph. The word here, as I've already said, translated body in the authorized version uh, and in the revised standard version, is not the same word as that used in verse 43. There the word can refer to uh, a body living or dead. Uh, but the word used in this verse is used solely of a dead body. You'll find it somewhere else where the Lord spoke of a dead carcass. There the vultures are gathered together. Um, John, thirdly, John alone informs us that the temple authorities went also to Pilate and requested that the legs of the three crucified be broken to hasten death since the Sabbath was approaching and it wasn't a special Sabbath, it was a high day because it was on, in the festival. This request was granted. Probably Joseph arrived just after they had left which could account for Pilate's surprise that uh, Jesus had already died. In fact, they never broke Christ's legs because they found that he was dead already when they got there. But one of the soldiers pierced his side and there came forth blood and water. Thus, the ancient law that no bone of the Passover lamb should be broken was fulfilled and the ancient prophecy that they should look on him whom they pierced was fulfilled. I wish we could stay and speak a little bit about the blood and the water, which simply include everything we know in uh, our salvation and in, in the church uh, in it. Uh, in the next uh, verses, the last two verses, 46 and 47, 
Joseph went quickly to the scene of the execution, joined evidently by Nicodemus. Together, these two godly members of the Sanhedrin, probably with the help of the soldiers on duty, gently and lovingly lowered the body of Christ. They washed the body, wrapped it in a fine linen sheet, along with the spices which Nicodemus had brought. Then they laid the body in Joseph's own newly hewn out and unused family tomb and rolled the great stone uh, which closed the entrance to it into place. Now it must have been about 5.30 to 6 p.m., probably nearer 5.30. And when they had finished, the Sabbath must have been right on them. These two must have worked, well, just, uh, it's unbelievable what the two of them did, uh, between probably just after four o'clock and five, one and a half hours in which to get the body off the cross, down, washed, uh, bound in the Jewish manner, uh, into the tomb and the thing sealed and still not break the Sabbath. It was the end of a momentous day. Sitting opposite the tomb, taking note of all that was done, were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the aunt of Christ. Now those are those verses 46 and 47. One or two things, wrapped him in the linen shroud. That's uh, how the Revised Standard Version puts verse 46. Fine linen is the authorised version. Linen cloth, the revised version. Linen sheet, the New English Bible and the New American Standard Bible. This was a, 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 a fine, a very fine linen, almost like a gauze, um, which was used as a garment and also uh, as a wrapper. Um, it seems that it was a kind of more or less shapeless type of garment, which could be used as a shroud as well. And that's why some of the modern versions use the word shroud. The ancient Jewish burial customs required the body first to be washed. May I just say this, that of all the people in the world who are most careful about death and everything to do with it, the Jews are supreme. And uh, they have a tremendous etiquette uh, in this whole matter of death and burial. Uh, Now, the custom required the body first to be very carefully washed, uh, especially the wounds, then anointed, wrapped in a fine linen sheet in which were included aromatic spices. Finally, the limbs were bound with strips or bands of cloth together, so that you had legs bound together and then the arms bound together. And finally, a napkin was bound over the head. Now, this explains Lazarus. When he came forth, uh, he, he, how he came forth, we don't really know, but they said, Lord said, quickly, go and loose him, you see, and take the napkin off his face. Uh, many other things. I'll, you've got all the scriptures for those of you who want to study it in the, in, in, in the notes. Um, second thing I want you to note is taking him down, verse 46. 
Now, Joseph must have had help in taking down the body from the cross. The nails alone had very big heads, and uh, it would have been no easy matter, especially if you had affection for the body, uh, to have got the body off the cross easily. He must have had help in taking down the body uh, from the cross. John informs us that, in fact, Nicodemus came to help. Dear old Nicodemus, another one of them, uh, bringing with him a large amount of very expensive spices. Indeed, liberals always laugh at the amount of um, uh, spices that Nicodemus bought. He could have buried... Uh, uh, a morgue full of people uh, with all that he bought in John 19. And I often wonder, is this an indication of some not only devotion, but real sorrow uh, in Nicodemus that so late he had come out into the open? I don't know, but I, I just think. Uh, nevertheless, even the two of them together would not have been enough for the work. Armed, no doubt, with Pilate's authority, they must have obtained the help of the soldiers, that is, the soldiers on duty. In all probability, Joseph and Nicodemus supervised the operation of getting the body down and off the cross. Then they would have done the rest themselves. They wouldn't have left it to Gentile hands. The impression we get of these two men is one of tender love and devotion. Both of them had been secret disciples, living in the shadows, never coming out of the open. It was Nicodemus who came by night to Jesus. Joseph had never come out into the open, although he had asked a question once in the Sanhedrin. Uh, now, the death of Christ brought both of them right out into the open. If it was the Sanhedrin, let's remember this, who were responsible for crucifying Christ, nailing him to the tree, Thank God, it was two members of the Sanhedrin who lovingly took his body off it. That will always preserve us from generalizing and just thinking that every single member of the Sanhedrin will be kidding so on. Thirdly, a uh, thing I just want you to note is the tomb which had been hewn out of the rock, verse 46. There are many examples of these tombs belonging to wealthy and aristocratic families, um, in the years before Christ and up to the destruction of Jerusalem, all around Jerusalem. Mark only emphasizes the fact that Joseph laid him in a tomb hewn out of rock. Matthew informs us that this was Joseph's own family tomb newly hewn out. Luke tells us that it had never been used before. John adds to our knowledge by informing us that this tomb was in a garden right at hand to the place of execution. These tombs normally consisted of a number of chambers with either ledges or niches. Uh, the niches were rather like ovens into which you slid the body. The ledges were long ways and could be easily seen. If the garden tomb in Jerusalem is the right one, then it wasn't one of the ledge-type uh, tombs that Christ was laid uh, to rest. When a family tomb uh, became overfilled, in order to make 
more room, the bones of the long departed were placed in a small stone coffer known as an ossuary. Um, there are many of these, and we won't go into that. The dead body was normally prepared for burial in the antechamber or court of the bigger tombs and then laid to rest in its permanent place. From the reference to the stone rolled against the door, we would understand that Joseph's tomb was a large one. These stones were large circular flat stones shaped like millstones. And indeed, in Hebrew, they are called golel to this day, which simply means circle. Um, uh, the smaller tombs often had a, a rectangular or square stone slab which fitted in to the entrance. And those of you who have been to Israel have seen the so-called tomb of Lazarus, will have noticed that that didn't have a big stone, as you often think of it, but was one of these smaller ones fitted in to it. That this particular stone of Joseph's tomb was large, we learn from Mark 16, 4, where it says, and it, for it was very large. And from Matthew 27, verse 60. The, um, uh, the seal of the temple authorities was no doubt attached to where this circular stone touched the frame of the door, the stone frame. It was a groove, which was called a dufek, and that was there, and then the seal was placed there. It was a very strongly held belief amongst Jews that the body should be buried. It was a curse to, to, to not be buried. And that the members of the same family should be buried together, and, even more surprisingly, that the family tomb should be reserved exclusively for the members of the family who owned it. When we understand this, we begin to understand the sacrifice which Joseph made. This tomb would have cost him a lot of money. It was hewn out of solid rock. Um, to have allowed it to be used in this way was something which must have gone right against everything he felt, his whole family feeling and so on. And again, one wonders how he came to the decision to give this to. Was he like Nicodemus, deep in his heart, sorrowful, that so late he had come out into the open? We don't know. All we know is that he had very little time to make his decision, but he made it. Two last points. Uh, Mary Magdalene and Mary, mother of Joseph, beheld where he was laid. Verse 47, the last verse. Mark records the simple fact of the devotion and faithfulness of these two women. Matthew tells us that they sat opposite the two. Note the word beheld. We're watching. We're taking note. It's in the imperfect sense. There's a sense of them sitting there. They were watching, the whole time taking note of what was going on. Luke appears to include more women than these two. He says the women that followed him from Galilee came. But possibly he records the fact that more than the two came to see where Christ was laid, but did not stay and were involved also with the preparation of the spices. Mary, the mother of Christ, was probably too worn out with, the, with sorrow to be present. One wonders where John was. Was he caring for Mary? Seems strange that he never appeared. Where were the other disciples? Were they so disillusioned, worn out by sorrow? We do not know. All we have, finally, is a picture 
are these two broken-hearted, faithful women. Uh, Their faithfulness, as always with God, was to be rewarded. They were to be the first to find the tomb empty and to meet the risen Christ. You'll find that in in the references I give you. Lastly, may I just say this, God always rewards faithfulness, even when it's faithfulness where we don't understand. These women couldn't understand what had happened. Their their world had fallen in, but they were faithful. I've often thought that uh, in the end we shall probably end up with just about the same. I don't mean just here, but I mean in the church. Just a tiny remnant of faithful people in the end. I don't know. It may be. Lastly, Matthew alone records the fact that the temple authorities requested an interview with Pilate, Sabbath though it was, and asked for a special precautions to be taken at the tomb for three days. They had better memories than the disciples. Not one of the disciples, it appears, remembered the three days until Christ was risen. Then they all said, did he not say? But not the Sanhedrin. They evidently had very good memories on this matter. And they went to Pilate and said, the imposter said that after three days he would rise again. So they evidently knew that he'd said he would be crucified. They were quite well aware. Isn't it amazing, the blindness of prejudice and bigotry? They themselves had been responsible for it. So anyway, they said, he had said this three days, would you see that it's... uh, precautions ought to be taken. So Pilate told them to do all in their power to ensure that the body remained in the tomb. This they certainly did by setting a seal on the entrance to the tomb and placing uh, 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 on duty an armed guard. So that's how we leave uh, the tomb with its great stone rolled against the door sealed and guarded. (coughs) The The temple authorities did not know that they were dealing with the one who openeth and none shall shut and that shutteth and none shall open. In many ways that's how I see the death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was shutting a door which would never again be opened. A dawn on an old world, on sin, on the former things, death, sickness, corruption, sorrow, mourning, all those things. He was shutting a door on a satanized society, a society which will always go wrong because the basis of its existence is self-centeredness. And he was opening a door which will never be shut, upon the salvation of God, into the salvation of God, into the life of God, into the service of God, into the kingdom of God. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, we do commit ourselves to thee and we do pray that thou wilt indeed make something of the significance of thy burial a living reality to us. May we be able to say, suffer done, I believe, in Jesus Christ,
who suffered unto Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell. He rose again on the third day. Oh, may we know it in our experience, Lord. Know something of its significance, something of its glory, something of its power. May we see, Lord, what happened in that tomb. And may we be enabled to leave what thou shut the door upon and move out into all that is in Christ. Oh, Father, help us, we do pray. We commit ourselves now to thee in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.